No, that's not right. There it is. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 419, The Wake at Peterborough. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And thank you very much to Karen, Susanna, and Alexander for signing up already. You may have noticed that Harrowburn the Wake seems to keep disappearing from the story, only to reappear again. This reflects the actual record, where he pops up only to vanish back into the mist just as quickly. His life appears to have been enigmatic. We only know him by these tidbits. But even in these small moments that he appears in the record, he manages to stand out. Harroward was a man on the go. And you get the sense that those times where he disappears from the record are the times when he's most active. Which I suspect is how guerrilla fighters just tend to work. But here... Harroward is returning back to the public eye in a big way. But he's been popping in and out of our story for so long that it's possible that you've forgotten who he was, or at least some of the key details about his early life. So let's do a really quick recap. Harroward was the son of a powerful land magnate. And as he grew up, he was sort of a rebel. We're told he had a tendency to pick fights with his parents' friends and neighbors, and he had a habit of collecting enemies. In episode 405, we discussed the likelihood that this feuding was over politics. And I know, in our modern era, it's really hard to imagine politics causing feuds between family members and neighbors, but you're just going to have to trust me. And the leave versus remain of Harroward's day was Godwinson versus Mercia. And it seems that Harroward may have been on Team Mercia. And this political bickering went well beyond whatever the 11th century version of Facebook posting was. The record actually tells us that Harroward's father had to actually send his men to defend his son almost every day with swords. And given the guy's overall reputation, including his military skill... I suspect that the first one drawing a sword was Harroward himself. And things kept escalating. And eventually, Harroward wasn't just picking fights. He started redistributing his family's wealth. Which makes me suspect that young Harroward had an innate understanding of the power of populism. And he was gathering supporters. But dad didn't appreciate his teenage son nicking all his stuff. And so, the wake was cast out. But Comrade Harroward didn't miss a beat. Upon his exile from the family home, he got together a few friends and rode to his father's estate, where he kept redistributing his father's wealth. And this was something that was obviously going to make him rather popular, at least with the recipients of that wealth. And if this had happened at another time, Harroward may have made some headway for his political goals. But this was 1062, the same year where a good number of enemies of the Godwinsons were killed or just died rather conveniently, and that Mercian power block collapsed. And in that storm of political retribution, Harroward himself got exiled, for real, on charges of, quote, stirring up sedition among the populace and tumult among the common people, end quote. 
But Harroward wasn't going to let a little exile get him down. So he stayed true to himself. And in the following years, we find all kinds of stories about Harroward's various feuds and fights, including one where the wake apparently stabbed a dude in the dick. And you can hear all about that and many other shenanigans in episode 405. And maybe these stories happened exactly as written. Or maybe they were embellished or invented. But whatever the case, the scribes went to a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink, making sure that we knew that Harroward liked to fight. Several years later, some bastard invaded England. And so Harroward took advantage of the chaos and came back to England to check in on his family, where he discovered that his father had died and Norman Knights had raped his mother and murdered his brother. In response, Harroward went full John Wick, and with the help of his trusty companion, Martin, he butchered every last Norman in his hometown. Now this either wasn't satisfying at all, or extremely satisfying, because then he proceeded to hunt down and slaughter any other Norman he could find until William personally sent Frederick, the brother of Earl William de Warren, to assassinate him. But because this was Harroward, Harroward actually assassinated Frederick instead and left his head at a crossroads as a warning. And so at this point, stories were obviously starting to spread, and Harroward was gathering a band of like-minded English. Because here's the truth of the matter. Messy political firebrands can be a real drag at a party, especially during stable, peaceful times. But... When the shit hits the fan and the cops start gassing your entire neighborhood because Officer Kemmerer got spooked by a kid holding a milkshake, well, that guy who only wants to talk about the landlord class at the kegger is the same guy who happens to have spare masks and jugs of milk on hand. You know, just in case. And so he's a good guy to know. Because you know who knows how to function in a mess? Another fucking mess. And Harroward fit that bill precisely. Even better, Harroward was connected and he had a solid head for politics because in the middle of all of this, he took the time to visit his uncle Brand, the abbot of Peterborough, where he likely reestablished his position as the protector of that region. So he wasn't just a messy firebrand. He was a messy aristocratic firebrand of God. And then, with all the pieces in place, with followers and just the right kind of political backing and major guerrilla victories, Harroward went to a port, got on a ship, and went back to Flanders. What the f***? Now, to be fair, he did promise that he would return within a year. But really, dude? You're leaving right when things were getting good? Why? Well, this is where we pick up his story. It turns out that back in Flanders, there was a girl named Herfrida. Now, her identity is murky, but we know that she was a noblewoman from Saint-Omer. She was also Harroward's wife. And this might have been why he was headed back at around this point. Because while I'm sure Martin was a fine companion, he was no Herfrida. And the fact that an English exile was married to a noblewoman from Saint-Omer isn't as surprising as it sounds. Saint-Omer had close ties with England. In fact, Tostig held a position in the town for a little while. 
And then, of course, you had exiles seeking refuge there. And it was also close to Saint-Bertin, which was where Queen Emma's biographer was housed. So a wealthy heiress from Saint-Omer marrying an English rebel was honestly pretty on brand for the region. But this match went well beyond regional history. The Gesta tells us that before these two even met, the noble Turfrida of Saint-Omer had fallen in love with Hereward, just based on the stories of all his fighting and feuding. Apparently, she liked him spicy. And let's be honest, Hereward had just done a lot more fighting and feuding, so he was probably looking forward to quite the homecoming. It's also plausible that he returned to Flanders because he had to, because he was still in service to the ruling family of Flanders. You see, while in exile, he lived under the largesse of Baldwin V. And though Baldwin was dead, there are stories that suggest that the wake was serving Baldwin's son, Robert the Frisian, as his military commander. We even have a story about a victory at a place called Skelda, Maryland, which is probably Zealand, which at the time, Holland was actually trying to wrest away from Flanders. So maybe Hereward was called back by Robert to command his forces in that continuing conflict. And there's even a record from this period of Hereward being present to witness at least one charter at Cambrai. So while he was back in Flanders, he was apparently taking part in courtly life. And while at Cambrai, he also got involved in a fight. Because of course he did. He was Hereward. And apparently, it was between, quote, a certain famous knight, end quote, named Baldwin, and the Vicomte of Piccany. Now, this famous Baldwin was likely Count Baldwin VI, who was, at the time, in open conflict with Arnulf of Piccany. Because, let's be honest, in chivalric culture, there are no shortages of conflicts. And for Hereward, this worked out pretty well, because it meant he was selling something that was in high demand. Ass-kickings. But eventually, his continental adventures came to an end, and Hereward returned to England, probably in the second half of 1069, right in the middle of Northumbria's war with the Normans. But none of our sources mention his involvement in the Northern Rebellion. Nor are there any sources mentioning him joining with the Atheling or Gospatric when they rode in to take command of Durham and Yorkshire's war. Furthermore, we don't see him listed as part of the Midlands Revolt led by Edric the Wild and the Prince of Gwyneth. So why? Well, it's possible that he was there, but the scribes weren't aware of it or didn't think it was important enough to write down. That's always a possibility with situations like this but I think it's far more likely that his absence in the record is due to the fact that he wasn't fighting in Mercia or Northumbria. All of these rebellions were still local affairs. The closest we got to a national revolt was in 1069, but even then, while there were revolts taking all over the place, in the Southwest, in the Midlands, and in Northumbria, they never managed to actually link up. And to be honest, we don't even know if they planned on linking up in the first place. Because when you think about it, while they all seem to have agreed that the Normans were terrible, that's probably the last thing that they agreed on. I mean, 
If you look at just Northumbria, there was a faction that wanted Swain of Denmark to take his uncle's throne and become the next king of England. And there was also a faction that wanted Edgar the Atheling to become the next king of England. And if the Northumbrian rebellion had that big of a split regarding their political goals, it isn't hard to imagine that the Cornish, the Mercians, and the Devonians had other ideas as well. And when you look at the records of who went into exile in places like Denmark and Scotland, it seems quite likely that East Anglia was just as rebellious as Northumbria and Mercia. And I'm sure that the East Anglians had their own ideas as well. So while it's quite possible that these rebellions were influencing each other, and while there was some degree of awareness and connection between them, there's no evidence of a broad, unified national movement. Do you remember how Portland, Seattle, Philadelphia, New York, and various other cities kicked off pretty hard in 2020? In many ways, they were all pulling in the same direction and saw each other as allies. However, there was no organized boss issuing orders. No one in Portland was taking orders from Philly. Hell, for the most part, people in Portland weren't taking orders from people in Portland. Because that's how popular uprisings often go. And England of 1069 looks very much like that. Some revolts were larger than others, and some had international involvement, and some very well may have had contact with other uprisings. But this doesn't have the shape of something that was organized from the top. This looks much more like a series of bottom-up rebellions. And thanks to William's efforts of installing Norman overlords in castles all over the place, well, that meant that while the king was probably the ultimate enemy, all of these rebellions had local figures who were actively oppressing them, and as a consequence, needed to be dealt with first. So these rebellions weren't even attacking the same targets. And this is probably why we have records of various high-ranked Englishmen from this period who were termed outlaws, and others who, like Edric, were given the moniker The Wild. Because rather than a two-sided war, you're looking at a bunch of different actions that, to the Normans, very well might have just looked like banditry or outlawry rather than a political movement. And even the large ones probably looked more like political opportunism or a counter-conquest, but not necessarily part of what all the other rebellions were doing. So, of course, we don't see records of Harroward fighting in Northumbria or on the western border. Everyone would have had their own immediate problems, and thus everyone's immediate enemies were very different. And for Harroward, I suspect his focus was on East Anglia, and in particular, with that tyrannical churchman that William had just installed in his uncle's seat at Peterborough. According to the Liber Eliensis, the monks of Peterborough had summoned Harroward and his band to, quote, defend their country and the liberty of their fathers, end quote. Now, remember, prior to his exile, it is likely that one of Harroward's roles was as protector for his family lands. And his uncle, Brand, was the abbot of Peterborough. So it's quite likely that that duty of protection extended to the abbey. And now that Harroward was back... His skills, oof, well, they were needed because William had just installed that tyrannical Turald in Uncle Bran's seat. And while Abbot Turald wore the costume of a monk, 
he was much more suited to life as a knight. He loved that lifestyle so much that William had actually installed him at Peterborough because he wanted to give Turald someone worth fighting. And he went into that position with gusto. Over the course of his tenure, Turald is recorded seizing ecclesiastical lands, establishing an order of knights maintained by the abbey, giving them 62 hides of the abbey's lands as a stipend, threatening to burn rival churches to the ground, pillaging rival abbey's shipments, and generally just being such a crazy f***ing asshole that even his courtly benefactors had to tell him to ease up a bit. If there's a hell, Turald is there. And he's probably trying to run the joint. But to be clear, these events all take place over the course of his reign at the Abbey. He didn't do them all at once. But the reason why I presented them all at once was because Malmesbury tells us that Turald's behavior at his previous job at Malmesbury was similarly ruthless and awful. But the details he gives are sparse. Basically, he just says, oh, yeah. This guy was a super vicious, greedy jackass while he was here. And so I wanted to give you more concrete details so you know exactly what kind of person Torold was. Because Torold was a known quantity in England. People would have known that he was awful. And they would have known the awful things he'd done at Malmesbury. And now he was coming to Peterborough. Now, the last time that we saw Torold, I told you of how he rode around with an army of 160 knights, which, in context of the time, came off super weird and just extremely bad vibes. But here's the part of the story that I didn't tell you yet. As aggressive as that move was, there may actually have been a logical reason for it, because we're told that Peterborough was, quote, infested with brigands led by a certain Harroward who was hiding among the marshes, end quote. So Big Bad Turald might have been feeling a little nervous. And you know those 62 hides of land that Turald seized and gave to his knights as a stipend? Well, those knights were given a very specific task in exchange for those lands. They were ordered to protect Turald and his property from Harroward and his band. Oh, and do you remember how William instituted the Merdram fine? A major reason for that was that he had been working steadily to colonize England with new Norman landlords. But those Normans kept turning up dead. And if this was Normandy, then the family of the deceased could just handle it themselves, you know, by going out and murdering the murderer or the murderer's family, like civilized people. But this wasn't civilized Normandy. This was the wild, savage lands of England, and the deceased Normans didn't have a lot of family in the area, so there wasn't anyone to go and seek blood debts, which meant that the government had to do something to stop all these assassinations, which is how we get the murderum fine, and also the modern word of murder, to the delight of true crime fans everywhere. And it's clear from the record that this problem of suspiciously dead Normans was widespread. And you also get the sense that one guy in particular had taken that trend and turned it into a new national sport. And if you don't believe me, here's what the Liber Eliensis says. Quote, Their leader is Harroward, a man in the prime of life and who has, in all respects, been most energetic in warfare ever since his youth. 
Among freemen, he is by no means of low rank, where nobility or riches are concerned. It is at the hands of these men that all the king's men and liegemen who have engaged in sword fights with them have perished, and they are continuing ceaselessly to perpetuate slaughter and pillage all around the kingdom. End quote. This passage makes it sound like Harroward was running some kind of English guild of assassins. And with that in mind, suddenly that comment by William of how Turold needed someone who deserved a fight, well, it starts to make sense. And while almost all the attention in the record is focused on Northumbria at this point, here and there, in bits and pieces, you can see a parallel story playing out in East Anglia. And it is one of a fierce guerrilla war waged by a merry band of English locals led by Harroward. And if this is starting to sound a bit like Robin Hood to you, you're not alone. And much like Robin Hood, while Harroward was a physical and militaristic figure at home, it was his adventures overseas that really turned him into the legendary leader that we're told about later on. You see... Flanders wasn't just a halfway house for exiled English nobles. It was a major center of chivalric culture. And records suggest that Harroward wasn't living there as a refugee. He was an active participant in the many, many conflicts that Flanders was embroiled in, even serving as a military commander in some of them. Which means that Harroward unlike almost all other English nobles, would have been well acquainted with chivalric warfare. He would have understood cavalry tactics. He would have been proficient at riding and the use of a lance. He would have been experienced in leading men in the way of war that used horses and walls rather than men and shields. And in some records, we see Harroward referred to as a magister militum, which was the leader of a group of knights. And that means that he would have led them in battle, trained new recruits, and organized the household soldiers that protected his lord. So much like how in modern retellings, Robin Hood becomes a legendary fighter during his time in the Crusades, Harroward's time in exile had the same effect. He'd leveled up. He'd even acquired his mount. And now that terrifying prodigal son was back in England. And he was putting all those skills to use and dropping bodies. He was getting famous for it. And King William, with his appointment of Abbot Turold, looks like he was probably trying to bring an end to this problem. So here we have Abbot Turold squaring up against the rebel leader Harroward. But there's one more force at play in all of this. The Danes. <laughs> You might remember that the Danes, under Asbjorn, had taken a huge bribe in exchange for their promise that they would leave England. The trouble was that Asbjorn's brother, King Swain, had subsequently arrived with an absolutely massive fleet of his own. And so, rather than leaving England, the Danish force had just doubled in size. And King Swain had recently sent a huge portion of that fleet south to the Fens again led by Asbjorn. And once they arrived, they were immediately welcomed by the locals. We're told that the people knew that this was their great big chance to retake their kingdom from the Normans. 
And when the Peterborough Chronicle says, quote, the English folks from all the Fendlands came to meet them, thinking that they were sure to conquer the whole land, end quote, there's a good chance that among these English folks was Hereward and his increasingly merry band. There's also a good chance that the monks of Ely and probably other abbeys were also present, which meant that suddenly Hereward wasn't just waging a lone guerrilla war with a band of supporters. He was part of something much larger. And the timing couldn't have been better. You see, guerrillas have one really big advantage in war. They don't have numbers and they don't have the full power of the government. But their limited numbers means that generally they can choose the time and place of engagement. And right now, Abbot Torold and his knights were in Stamford, while Hereward and his men were right here in the Fens with their new Danish friends. It was time to raid the Abbey. Not to steal everything. We're told that Hereward and his men had no interest in taking the relics for themselves. The plan was to take advantage of the element of surprise and spirit the relics away from Peterborough before Torrell got the chance to hawk them on medieval Craigslist. Unfortunately, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And it turns out they were already in contact with the enemy. Because based on the events that follow, it's clear that there were people within Peterborough who were aware of Hereward's plan. And one of those people, a churchman named Ivor, was not pleased. We're told he caught wind of Hereward's plans and, in a panic, he gathered everything valuable and portable that he could carry and then loaded it up and rushed out of town to bring them to the new abbot, Turold. And I wish we knew what Ivor's motivations were for doing this. Because figures like this fascinate me and their motivations vary wildly. I mean, it could be personal animosity, political differences, personal ambitions, and the belief that helping the powerful will advance those goals. Some people are just naturally aligned with authority and have a reflexive rejection of any kind of disruption to the power structure. The causes for behavior like this really are endless, but unfortunately, we're not told why Ivor did what he did. All we know is that he snuck away in the middle of the night with, quote, the gospels and chasubles and copes and robes and other such small things whatsoever he could and went early before the day to the abbot Turold, telling him that he sought his protection and informing him how the outlaws were coming to Peterborough, end quote. Now, I've read several translations of this, and that's the easiest one to understand. But I should point out the chasubles can also be described as mass hackles and robes as reefs. And I have read a translation like that, which made it sound like he was stealing someone's saltwater aquarium and then creeping folks out, which is extremely funny, but not exactly educational. So chasubles and robes it is. Anyway, so the Peterborough Chronicle helpfully adds that Ivor was acting on orders of the monks when he did this. So I guess either Hereward didn't let the monks know he was planning on secreting the relics away for safekeeping, or they just didn't believe him and figured he was yet another bandit. And honestly, fair enough, monks. There were a lot of bandits in those days, so that was a reasonable suspicion. But details like this put the Chronicle in contrast with the Gesta, 
which tells us that Hereward had rolled into Peterborough at the request of the monks at the Abbey. And both the Chronicle and the Gesta have their own perspectives and political motivations. And both can play fast and loose with the facts at times. So, like with many things, these are open questions regarding precisely what happened here. But my best guess is that if the monks were truly opposed to the whole thing, it wasn't Hereward that they were concerned about. It was Asbjorn and the Danes. But that is only a guess. And any of these sources, or even all of them, could be fibbing. So who knows? Whatever was going down, though, the monks were apparently not feeling it. And so when Hereward and the Danes arrived at Peterborough, quote, with many ships, end quote, the monks tried to keep them from entering the minster. And this, it seems, is where it all goes pear-shaped. Hereward and his men may have had a plan. And that plan may well have included protecting the relics and the monastic wealth from foreign avarice. But I'm not sure if they communicated those plans with Asbjorn and the Danes. Or maybe they did, and maybe the Danes took an ends-means approach to the whole thing. Either way, this army was not behaving like a force trying to win hearts and minds by protecting the abbey and its sacred relics. This army went raiding. So while the monks were barring doors and trying to defend the abbey, the Danes responded by setting the whole goddamn town on fire. Those monastic dorms burned. The homes of the lay people in town burned. They were going absolutely ape. And I'm sure that as they were doing this, they were making sure to grab anything that looked valuable. I mean, this was a raid, and that kind of goes without saying. And at the same time, they were also setting fire to the gate that guarded the entrance of the abbey. So before long, it was breached. And the monks, realizing their ability to sing in close harmony wasn't going to be all that useful in armed conflict with the Danish army, rushed out and tried to negotiate a truce. It didn't work. Instead, the Danes rushed the minster and plundered it. They took everything they could find. The carving of Christ wearing a golden crown? Well, that crown will do. So one of the men climbed up to the Holy Rood and grabbed it. Oh, and that footrest was also made of gold. Yoink. Others climbed up to the steeple and found either a table or a crozier that was made of gold and silver and began to carry it out. Others were grabbing the shrines, two of gold and nine of silver. Still more were grabbing large gold and silver crucifixes that were apparently all over the place since there were at least 15 that were nabbed. There were also books, various treasures, money, clothes, fancy hats. That abbey had some very portable wealth, and the army was grabbing all of it and loading it onto their ships as, outside, Peterborough burned. The Chronicle tells us that so much was taken that afterwards, the monks couldn't even calculate how much was lost. And I'm sure that was intended to highlight the avarice of the army and the ruthlessness of the theft. But by accident, they also told us how obscenely wealthy that abbey was. Because if someone broke into my home and nicked my stuff, you better believe I would know what was missing. You have got to be insanely rich to be all, oh yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of other jewels and relics that were taken, but come on, I can't remember it all. But now, having acquired all the treasure and relics from the abbey, Hereward and the Danes boarded their ships 
and sailed for their allies at Ely, quote, where they deposited all the treasure, end quote. And we're specifically told that following the raid at Peterborough, the Danes still expected that they were going to defeat William. So while these tactics were clearly raid-like, it is possible that this was the strategy all along, that they were trying to deny William and his allies the wealth of Peterborough. But they probably should have gone about it with a defter hand, you know? Anyway, the monks of Peterborough fled following the raid. It looks like no one wanted to be around when Turald and his army of knights rode in and found this disaster. So all of them, except for one monk named Leofwina, who was too sick to flee, legged it. Which meant that by the time that Turald reached Peterborough, Hereward and the Danes were gone. And all he had left of his promised income was a burned out husk of an abbey and poor sick Leofwina. In the immediate aftermath, Hereward and his men were excommunicated by Bishop Athelrich of Durham. And that might strike you as odd. I mean, why would a bishop from Durham excommunicate people for what they did in Peterborough? Why did he care so much about what happened in East Anglia? Couldn't they find an East Anglian bishop to do the excommunication? Well, I don't know, but maybe not. Everything in the record regarding East Anglia gives the impression that we're only getting a small sliver of the story and that something larger was going on here. And so maybe the local bishops had rebel sympathies, just like the monks at Ely did. It's hard to say, but I will point out that Bishop Athelrich of Durham was the same bishop that King William and his allies, through that papal legate, had recently arrested and imprisoned. And so if William was looking for a conveniently located bishop, who was also rather motivated to do anything he needed to to keep him happy, well, the king would need to look no farther than his own dungeons. And as for Hereward and his men, well, that excommunication doesn't seem to have brought them down all that much, nor caused them much social stigma. In fact, stories of the plunder of the abbey as well as the assassinations and ambushes and killings and, I assume, his stabbing duel, were circulating even farther and with more excitement. His mystique was growing. And so, quote, his name became known to all and people told the story of his battles throughout the kingdom, end quote. Like I said, if this reminds you of Robin Hood, you're not alone. Oh, and speaking of Robin Hood... How was Hereward's Maid Marian doing? After all, this time, Turfrida had decided to accompany her rebel love on this mission. So she was here in country as he was doing all of this. So what was she up to? Unfortunately, we're not told if she took an active role in Hereward's rebellion. Which is a bold move, but it does appear she was with him which is a bold move for a rich girl from across the channel. Though I do wonder how she was feeling about her choices. I mean, it probably seemed pretty cool at first, and Hereward was famous, which carries its own glamour. In fact, he was so famous that when Hereward is first mentioned in the record, his very first mention, the scribes don't even explain who he was. They just assume that you already know exactly who Hereward is. Sort of like if you mentioned Sting, you could reasonably assume that people would know exactly who you were talking about. Same deal here. 
And so you can kind of imagine why Turfrida got all hot and bothered over this famous rebel figure. What with all the assassination attempts, stabbings and feuds and the like. But spending long nights hiding in a swamp while plucking off leeches just so you can have the chance to ambush some Norman landlord? Well, that probably wasn't as romantic as it had sounded back when she was safe at home on her rich family's estate in Saint-Omer. I imagine her experience was a bit like a historical romance fan suddenly finding herself living in the 18th century. Like the real one. Where are all the dudes with washboard abs calling her Sassanek? There's just snakes here and, I don't know, necrotizing fasciitis? This sucks. Though, maybe Turfrida was a stone-cold rebel and was super down for all this soggy gorilla lifestyle. Our sources don't tell us, so we'll never know. The only thing we know is that she doesn't appear to have bailed when things got dicey, unlike many of our English nobles. And I do love a good hard-as-nails Maid Marian. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. Reddit really is the best one, but you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>